Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to update your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions do apply. Well, what a difference a day makes, or in this case, a weekend, because everything they were selling on Friday, they were buying back on Monday. On Friday, the market suffered the Bullard bust, right? Because Jim Bullard came on CNBC and indicated that the Fed was actually talking about talking about tapering or raising interest rates, and they might actually start the talking in a few more meetings. And a few more meetings after that, they might actually begin to let the markets know that at some point in the future, they might actually nudge interest rates up slightly. And so the market started to believe that interest rates may actually rise from zero to maybe 25 or 50 basis points a little bit sooner than they expected. Maybe by the end of 2022, we might actually get our first quarter point rate hike as opposed to sometime in 2023 or 2024. And the mere suggestion of that possibility sent the markets down. And so everybody was selling the cyclicals, the economically sensitive stocks, value dividend oriented stocks, dumping commodities, dumping gold, buying U.S. Treasuries, long-term U.S. Treasuries. Well, today, they did the opposite. They were selling Treasuries. They were buying the commodities. They were buying the cyclical stocks and the value-oriented stocks. They were buying back some gold. What changed between Monday and Friday? Well, nothing changed. Maybe what happened is people had the weekend to think about how ridiculous it was to sell based on what Bullard said, because he really didn't say anything. The Fed did not change policy. Bullard didn't say, hey, we're raising rates. He didn't even say we're talking about raising rates. He said we're talking about talking about it. And the same thing has to do with tapering. And I guess people started to realize that it doesn't even matter what anybody at the Federal Reserve says about what the policy is going to be two or three years into the future, because they have no idea what's going to happen in the present, let alone several years into the future. In fact, if you go back and look at what the Fed was forecasting rates would be in 2021, 
back in 2019 or 2018, they were even close to being right. Do you think anyone in the Fed back in 2019 had a forecast that the rates would be zero in 2021? Of course not. They were supposed to be, I don't know, 3%, 4%. There were all sorts of expectations that the Fed had two or three years from now. None of them panned out. Now, of course, you can say, well, nobody expected COVID-19, which is true. Nobody expected COVID-19. But look, nobody expects a lot of things that happen. What we know is a lot of things are going to happen that you don't expect. That's why you got to expect the unexpected. It makes me think of the old Monty Python skit. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. But you know what? Every once in a while, it happens. And so nobody can expect what's going to happen in two or three years. So what difference does it make what the Fed FOMC governors are saying today about a future that is completely uncertain and they have such a bad track record of forecasting it. All we can do is look at what's happening in the here and now. And in the here and now, they're expanding their asset purchase program. Interest rates are locked at zero. Not a single member of the FOMC voted to raise interest rates. Not a single member of the FOMC voted to taper their asset purchase program. In fact, the one thing that the Fed does know for sure is that two or three years from now, the U.S. economy is going to have a lot more debt than it has today. The government's going to have a lot more debt. Corporations are going to have a lot more debt. Individuals are going to have a lot more debt. The entire country is going to be far more levered up in two or three years than it is right now. Now, one of the main reasons that they're not raising interest rates now, one of the main reasons they're not tapering their asset purchase program right now, despite the price pressures that we're already witnessing across uh, the country, the main reason is because there's so much debt. The Fed is worried about pricking the debt bubble. The Fed is worried about how the economy will handle an increase in interest rates given the degree of leverage that already exists. Well, if the Fed is concerned about how much debt there is now and about the negative consequences of imposing a greater burden on those that need to service that debt by raising interest rates, what about two or three years from now? Because then there's going to be a lot more debt. The economy is going to be even more levered up. That is the irony of the whole situation. The longer the Fed keeps interest rates low because they're so worried about all the debt, the more additional debt we take on because the low interest rates simply encourages the indebted to go deeper into debt. And so if the Fed can't raise interest rates now because of all the debt we have today, how are they going to raise interest rates tomorrow when we have even more debt? The answer is they're not. So they can talk all they want. They can think all they want. They can pretend all they want. But can they actually do anything? No. And maybe that's what the markets are starting to comprehend. And so they are now going back to the rotation out of the momentum type stocks into the value oriented stocks, the cyclical stocks. They're buying back uh, the commodities. They're buying back gold. Now, of course, gold did not come close to recovering last week's losses. I mean, we more than recouped Friday's loss because we gained about 20 bucks, uh, but we were down 6% last week. I mean, we got 1% out of the six back today, but we didn't come close to recovering the losses from Thursday or Wednesday, but at least they're buying gold. But look what happened with oil because investors, as they were dumping commodities in general, they didn't even dump oil. That's how strong the oil market is. And oil actually hit a new high for the year today. Oil got to $72.03. Now we closed a little bit below uh, 72. As I'm recording this podcast, it is Monday evening. Uh, Oil is at 71.85. You know, the reason I'm recording this podcast on a Monday evening, we're probably going to release it on Tuesday uh, afternoon in the East Coast. That's when you're going to hear it. I wanted to get this podcast done tonight 
because tomorrow I am flying to Europe, and so I probably won't be able to do another podcast for at least a couple of days. So I wanted to get this one done so it could be released on Tuesday. I probably won't do another one until Thursday at the earliest. So as I'm recording it now, we're back below 72 at 71.84. But oil was so strong that even when other commodities were being sold, speculators held on to their oil and then they bought oil. Oil had a nice gain today to make a new high. Remember, the oil stocks were among the biggest losers last week. Now, they gained back a good chunk of what they lost last week, but they didn't recover anywhere near everything they lost, even though oil prices are actually higher than they were at any point last week. And you know, oil, if you look at the chart, this chart looks explosive. I would not be surprised to see a very quick move, not just to $80 a barrel on the price of oil, but maybe up to $100 a barrel. And of course, if we get a big spike up in the price of oil, that should really put a nail in the coffin of the fantasy of transitory inflation. Because if we get that kind of spike now, going into the summer, early in the summer, there's going to be a lot of pressure on consumer prices, far more pressure in the back half of 2021 than there was in the front half. And we already had a horrible front half. And remember, according to the Fed, and I mentioned this in my last podcast, the official forecast by the Fed is that for the next seven months, the CPI gains on average of one-tenth of 1% per month. This despite the fact that the lowest we've had in any month during the first five was 0.3, and that was in January, and every month since then has been above it. They're looking for 3.4% inflation for the entire year as measured by the CPI, and we've already got 2.7% during the first five months. So a big spike in oil prices from here should really put all that nonsense to rest, and people will realize that inflation is out of control. And the fact that the Fed is not already raising rates right now, right? Given everything that they're seeing, that tells you all you have to know because it doesn't matter what the Fed is saying. What matters is what they're doing. And what they're doing right now is nothing. They are ignoring all of these signs of inflation. They've got the pedal to the metal when it comes to monetary policy. They're talking about tapping on the brakes, but they're not giving any signs that they're actually going to break. And so I think that as more and more people really start to appreciate the predicament that the Fed is in and they see through this bluff, they are going to end up calling the Fed's bluff. And of course, the Fed is holding nothing. So the dollar is going to tank and gold is going to take off. Now, in contrast to how good the oil chart is looking, if you want to look at a chart that is the opposite of oil, Take a look at the Bitcoin chart because the Bitcoin chart looks horrible. And in fact, I mentioned on my last podcast that Bitcoin actually held up relatively well last week. I mean, it was only down about 3%, which was about half the decline of gold. And of course, that did not go unnoticed by uh, the Bitcoiners. Uh, the Bitcoin bugs were making fun of me and making fun of gold all weekend because gold was down so much and Bitcoin held up. And I mentioned on my last podcast that I didn't really know what was holding it up and that I expected it to fall. Well, it really fell today. It was down about 9% on the day. So it was down 50% more than gold was down last week. And it did it in one day. And remember, that's building on the loss from last week. So down 3% last week, 9% today, that's 12% and falling. Uh, so Bitcoin, much, much weaker than gold. The chart just looks horrible. And in fact, we got some really bad news out today. And of course, first of all, the big drop that we had that started last night, it was blamed on China and China cracking down on Bitcoin mining and Ethereum mining, and Ether actually got beat up even more than Bitcoin on the day. As I'm speaking, Ether is trading below 2,000. Bitcoin is hovering below 32,000. But to me, you can't keep blaming the weakness in Bitcoin 
on China cracking down on Bitcoin because we already know that China is cracking down on Bitcoin. There's nothing new about that. This has been in the market for a long time. You would think the markets would have fully digested the bad news about China. Okay, yeah, China's cracking down. We know that. Why isn't that already priced into the market? I think it is. I don't think these declines are because of what's happening in China. I think the market has already fallen based on that. Everybody knows that. That's old news. But I do think it's a convenient excuse to blame the weakness on so that people will just dismiss it as being FUD because everybody knows, oh, if it's going down because of China, we don't have to worry about it. Well, maybe it's going down for another reason that you should worry about. In fact, one of the most worrying developments, I think, is the news today from MicroStrategy. And Michael Saylor tweets it out as if this is good news. But MicroStrategy has already purchased $500 million approximately dollars worth of Bitcoin. So pretty much it's blown all the money that it just borrowed. It's already finished and it bought at an average price of $37,617. MicroStrategy is already down 15% on that money, on that Bitcoin that it bought with borrowed money. Now, if you remember, I said that I thought one of the reasons that Bitcoin had that big bounce, you know, from 3,000, 3,200 up to 40,000 was because MicroStrategy announced it was going to be buying $500 million worth of Bitcoin. I said that traders were going to front run that buy uh, and turn around and sell those Bitcoin to MicroStrategy at a higher price. And that once MicroStrategy was finished buying, the price would come back down. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, that's why I think the market went down because MicroStrategy was filled. The buying was done. And now the market returned to where it was before MicroStrategy announced it was going to borrow all this money and buy all this Bitcoin. So what happened was some people got to unload their Bitcoin on MicroStrategy. Now, MicroStrategy is done buying, and their buying had no effect on the price. The price is no higher, even though they blew $500 million worth of borrowed money. Well, what's next? Now, how are they going to prop it up? Now, they've already announced that they're going to do an ATM, an at-the-market offering of more common stock up to a billion dollars and flush more good money after bad and buy even more Bitcoin. But, you know, I've said this, I think, before. If you really want to buy Bitcoin, I mean, I don't, I have no interest in it. But if you want to buy Bitcoin, my advice to you, other than don't buy it, but if you're going to buy it no matter what, then wait for MicroStrategy to sell, right? Everybody thinks they've got diamond hands, right? MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy's diamond hands are made of glass because nobody on leverage, nobody that is borrowing money to buy anything has diamond hands. You are at the mercy of your creditors when you are borrowing money. Remember, they're paying 6.125% on the money they borrowed, and they're already down 15% on that money. And it, it, the trades have barely settled. I think if MicroStrategy keeps on buying Bitcoin with borrowed money and keeps selling stock to buy more, eventually they're going to sell. Whether the current managers sell or the new managers that take over the company in bankruptcy, MicroStrategy is weak hands. It's going to be flushed out of this position at some point. And once it's sold, it's last Satoshi. And MicroStrategy has no more Bitcoin. All right, maybe it'll be washed out. You want to punt on it, go ahead and buy it. I would not be buying it so long as MicroStrategy is there because I think the market smells blood. And I think they are going to press this until they get this guy to sell. Uh, because obviously, if you want to buy, when MicroStrategy is forced to dump its 105,000 Bitcoin on the market, well, that might give people a, a good entry price. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, the total that MicroStrategy has now wasted on Bitcoin is $2.741 billion to buy its 105,000 Bitcoin. Its average price is just over 26,000 Bitcoin, 26,080. Now, if you recall, when Bitcoin was around 60,000, 65,000, and its average price was around 20,000, it looked pretty good because it had a triple. Well, now MicroStrategy is only up 20% on its Bitcoin on paper. That's not a very big gain. And in fact, if MicroStrategy actually wanted to dump its entire position right now, I'm sure it would push the market down by more than 20% and it would end up with a loss. So this paper profit means nothing if you can't realize it. Meanwhile, MicroStrategy has to pay interest on the money that it borrowed to accumulate this position and is continuing to sell stock to buy more. So this is not good news. This is bad news. And I'm surprised the Bitcoin community isn't reacting to the fact that all this dry powder was just used and nothing happened. You know, it's like, you know, the Superman movies when, you know, you shoot all your bullets at Superman and, you know, they bounce off his chest and you kind of realize you're screwed, right? Because, you know, you can't hurt the guy. I don't know. Sometimes they, they end up throwing the gun at him as if, you know, the bullets didn't hurt him. But maybe maybe if I throw the gun really hard at him, that, that'll hurt him. I mean, MicroStrategy threw $500 million at the Bitcoin market and it didn't move it at all. Also, think about this. While MicroStrategy only has a 20% paper gain on its Bitcoin, the stock itself is still up just over 50% on the year. But even more significant, if you go back to when MicroStrategy first made its major buy or announced its buy of Bitcoin, that was back in August of 2020. It now only has, again, a 20% gain on all the Bitcoin it's bought going back from the beginning until the Bitcoin it just bought. Yet the stock is up fourfold principally on the fact that it's bought Bitcoin. Again, these spectacular gains might have made sense when MicroStrategy still had a spectacular gain on its Bitcoin, but they don't make any sense now when MicroStrategy barely has a paper profit on those Bitcoin. You know, by the way, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, even though Bitcoin itself is still up about 10% on the year, emphasis on still, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is down 14% on the year and falling. And the reason for that is because what was a premium is now a discount. And by the way, Barry Siebert, right, publicly came out, this was, I think, in March of this year, and he first announced that Grayscale was going to do a $250 million buy because he was determined to close the then 10% discount to NAV. And I've seen that discount intraday get up near 20%. Remember, over a year ago, when I really was talking about the premium, it got as high as, I think, almost 40%, 30-40% premium. But when it was down at a 10% discount, Siebert promised to close that discount by buying back stock. And in fact, in early May, he promised investors $750 million in share buybacks to close that discount. Meanwhile, here we are in late June. And thus far, I think Siebert has purchased less than one third of the shares that he promised to buy. I wonder what Siebert is so worried about. We've had this 50% drop in Bitcoin, yet he's barely followed through on his commitment to buy shares of the Bitcoin Investment Trust. 
and the 10% discount that he promised to close remains at 10%. Also, we can't forget about Tesla. Remember when Elon Musk sent Bitcoin soaring when he first revealed that his company added Bitcoin to its balance sheet with a $1.5 billion buy, likely at the urging of Michael Saylor. And at one point when Bitcoin hit close to 65,000, on paper anyway, Tesla had about a double on its Bitcoin. Everybody was talking about how Tesla had made so much more money buying Bitcoin than it did selling cars. Well, at this point, I think Tesla is in the red because I think it paid about 33000 per Bitcoin. So that shows you when it comes to Bitcoin, you can't count your chips while you're still sitting at the table. And you know what? This game is a long way from over and Tesla could end up with a huge loss on its Bitcoin gamble. Another ominous sign, though, for the whole crypto market is that Tether is not only now the third largest cryptocurrency by market cap, but it has a lead on the number four cryptocurrency by greater than 50%. Now, Ether still has a pretty big lead on Tether, but you know, if Tether gains another 40% in market cap, which you could easily do if Bitcoin price keeps falling and they keep creating more tethers to buy them up. And if Ether simply surrenders its 2021 gains, something that Bitcoin itself seems very poised to do, then Tether would actually vault into the number two position, second only to Bitcoin itself. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three, post, screen, and interview, and you do it all on Indeed. Right now, you can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, and you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications, and then schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy with tools like Indeed Instant Match that give you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. In fact, you can choose from more than 130 skills tests and add your must-have requirements so you only pay for the applicants that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Another news item that I wanted to discuss today, I read this story about how California Governor Gavin Newsom is thinking about and probably will extend the California moratorium on evictions so that tenants can continue to not pay their rent and not have to worry about being evicted. And, you know, I was reading this story, it was an AP story, and it featured a 43-year-old single mother who had not worked really since March of 2020, which is really the beginning of the pandemic. And apparently she hasn't really paid any rent since then because it mentioned she was $30,000 behind in her rent. So she owed her landlord 30 grand. Uh, her rent is about $1,924 a month or exactly $1,924 a month. So basically, if you do the math, she hasn't paid rent in 15 months, which basically takes you back to March of 2020. So this woman hasn't paid any rent to her landlord. And obviously now she owes 30000 And they're trying to claim that the reason she hasn't paid any rent is because she didn't have a job. Well, okay, she didn't have a job, but that doesn't mean she didn't have any income. She probably got plenty of unemployment money. Why didn't she use any of that money to pay rent? Now, I'm guessing that if this woman was paying $1,924 a month in rent and she was able to make that rent payment, I'm sure she earned at least, let's say, $75,000 a year, right? She's a single mom out in California. That would put her rent at about 30% of her income, which is about average for California. 
It's higher than the national average, uh, but that's about the average in California. So assuming her rent was 30% of her income, she was earning 75000 a year. If she lost her job in March of 2020, she would have qualified for the maximum weekly unemployment benefit in California, which would have been $450 a week. But then she would have also qualified for the $600 supplement. So she would have got you know, $1,050 a week. If you multiply that out, that's about $55,000 a year, not quite the $75,000 that she used to earn. But remember, she's no longer working. So she's probably saving a lot of expenses that she had to absorb when she had a job. She had a commute. You know, she had other expenses, getting ready for work, maybe, you know, makeup, hair, whatever she had to do to get ready for her job. Maybe she had to eat lunch in restaurants. Of course, she had some kids. Maybe she had some childcare expenses. Even if you assume that she only saved five grand a year by not working, my guess would be she saved more than that. But let's just say she saved 5000 So she basically earned the equivalent of $60,000 a year not working she was earning $75,000 a year when she worked, so her income was reduced by 20%. So she still had 80% of her income, even though she didn't have any of her work. Well, if that was the case, if she had 80% of her income, couldn't she have at least paid 80% of her rent? Couldn't she have given her landlord something? No, she didn't. Why didn't she? Because the government was dumb enough to tell all the tenants, you don't have to pay your rent. We're not going to let your landlord evict you. So people stopped paying their rent. And I talked about this during my podcasts. One of the reasons that so many people were spending so much money on new cars and buying stuff on Amazon was because they had all this extra income because they weren't paying their rent. I'm sure this single mother was buying all sorts of stuff without a job that she wasn't buying when she still had a job because she had to pay her rent. But once the government has said, you don't have to pay your rent, well, then she didn't do it. And of course, there's also a big moral hazard here because I'm sure a lot of people out in California who haven't been paying their rent and who now owe $30,000 in back rent, which they cannot pay because they spent the money, right? They didn't put it in a savings account you know, to pay their rent in the future. They, they spent the money. It's gone, right? So I think a lot of people are just under the impression that all of this rent is going to be forgiven, that the government is going to say, you know what? No one has to pay this back rent because it's such a big number. The government is going to make the landlords whole. And in fact, that is what Gavin Newsom said, I think, today when he talked about extending the moratorium on evictions, that the government was going to make the landlords whole. How? With what money? Where are they going to get it? But forgetting about that, if the government is telling the landlords publicly that we will make you whole if your tenants don't pay the rent, what are you telling the tenants? Well, even if you felt bad, even if you felt some moral obligation to pay your rent, don't worry about it. Because if you don't pay it, The government's going to pay it for you. The landlord's not going to get screwed. He's still going to get the money. In fact, what the government is doing is making anybody who actually pays their rent feel like a chump, right? Why pay your rent when the government's going to pay it for you? Why be the only person on your block paying the rent, right? Don't be an idiot. Keep the money. The government's going to simply forgive all the unpaid rent anyway. So you might as well take that money and buy stuff. This is the moral hazard that politicians still don't understand. They are the source of the problem. And then, of course, they always try to come up with another government program to solve a problem that the first government program created. It never occurs to them that the solution is to get rid of all the government programs because one bad government program to offset the negative effects of another bad government program doesn't work. The idea that two wrongs make a right doesn't work in legislation either, but our politicians will never figure this out. As I said earlier in the podcast, I am leaving tomorrow for my one-month trip to Europe, and I do intend, again, to be doing podcasts from Europe. So if people are worried, hey, Peter's going to be in Europe for a month, I'm going to have to go a month without podcasts, you're not. I'm going to continue to do them from Europe. 
but I have been talking about the saga of my passport renewal for my son. And so today, I actually went down to the passport office in New York City to get a passport, not only for my son, but to get a new one for my daughter because her passport was going to expire in about four months. And so I didn't want to take a chance that that would be a problem. So as long as I was going down to get a new one for my uh, seven-year-old, I wanted to get a new passport for my five-year-old as well. So we went down to New York City and we remember we snagged this appointment because a follower of mine on Twitter happens to own a company, It's Easy Passport and Visa, and he saw that I was about to fly to Hawaii, which was the only appointment I was able to get on my own. And he said, don't do that. I can get you an appointment in Manhattan. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. And I had the appointment the day before I was scheduled to leave on my flight. So really uh, at the last minute. But I want to relate a little bit of this experience to my audience. So you get another example of the utter incompetence of the U.S. government, as if you needed more examples, you know, I'm just going to provide one anyway. It's kind of overkill. But so we drive into the city from Connecticut, right? And as we are driving up in front of the passport office, now I hired a driver for the day to drive us because, you know, we're coming from Connecticut. I wanted to get, you know, right up to the uh, federal building to get the passport. So as we're driving up, I see this long line that extends down the street and around the block. And I'm saying to my wife, oh, my God, you know, we've got this 8.30 appointment, 8.30 in the morning. We're driving up at 8 o'clock, and there's this huge line. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I mean, even though we have an appointment, we still have to wait in this long line. We're going to be here all day, right? So I get out of the car, and I see a guy there in a uniform. And so I I ask the guy, we have an 8.30 appointment. Do we have to stand in this long line? And the guy says, oh, no, no, you got an appointment. Come right here. Uh, stand over here. Here, this guy's got a nine o'clock, so get right in front of him. It's a very small line. Maybe there's, you know, half a dozen people in front of me. I'm right by the door. Uh, and I said to the guy, well, what's this long line here that's wrapped around the, the block? And he said, oh, that's the line for people who don't have appointments. And I said to the guy, but I thought you couldn't get in without an appointment. He said, you can't. And I said, so you mean all these people waiting on this line, none of them are actually going to get in? And he said, that's right. Not a single person waiting on this line is actually going to get in. And then I said to the guy, well, why don't you tell them that? I mean, they're wasting their time. Why don't you go tell them they're not going to get in? And then he looked at me and says, I don't want to say that. I mean, they're just going to get mad at me. So I'm just I'm just going to mind my own business because I don't want them getting upset at me because I tell them they're not going to get in when they're not going to get in. So in other words, he's letting them waste the entire day standing out in the sun in a long line when they're never going to get in. And, you know, I, it reminded me, or I started thinking of Studio 54, you know, the nightclub. It was a very popular nightclub in Manhattan in the 1970s. And there were other nightclubs that kind of emulated its style. But, you know, Studio 54 was very difficult to get into if you didn't, you know, know the doorman or if you weren't a member. You know, I remember my mother was a member. She so used to go all the time. But I was really too young to go when I lived in the city. I was in junior high school, high school. So, you know, I I wasn't able to really go to Studio 54, but I went down there. I I checked it out so I could see what the scene was like. But what you'd have at Studio 54, you'd have this huge mob of people gathered around, you know, where the canopy was and the doormen, right? And they had the the ropes, the velvet ropes, and the doormen were on the inside, and this huge crowd of people is on the outside of these velvet ropes. And they're all crowded around. And then people would show up who they know, right? Or members or, you know, really, really beautiful women or whoever would show up and they would immediately be waved through. They would come through the crowd and they would get right in. And then there'd be this big crowd. And the thing was, the people standing in the crowd had absolutely no chance of getting in. They were not, no matter how long they stood there, hours after hours, they were not going to get in. The doormen knew they were never letting these people in, but they didn't tell them that. Why? Well, they didn't want them to leave. They wanted those people to stay there so that the people that they did let in would feel special when they came there because they got into this place that so many people wanted to get into, but they weren't allowed. 
So they didn't want to send the crowd away. And to me, it almost felt like they were trying to create that kind of environment where the people who actually had an appointment would be so glad that they could get in because they could see this huge line of people that didn't have appointments. So that's kind of how the whole thing started. But what's even more amazing about the whole experience is how empty it actually was inside. There was hardly anybody in there. Now, part of the problem that made it look crowded is they only let people in in half-hour increments. So because they made appointments every half hour. So every half hour, they would let in the new batch of people. But even after I finished the application process and you know got my passport, you have to leave and come back to pick up your passport. But even when you're coming back, even though then you don't have an appointment, you can only come in during those half hour increments. And so because they, they force everybody to come in in a half hour, they actually create a little bit of a crowd going through because you have to go through security, you have to empty your pockets, take you know take out your cell phone and all that stuff because you're going into a government building, so you have to go through security. Only the only reason that there was a line was because they let people in in groups every half hour. If they simply just let people in, there never would have been a line because once you get upstairs, there's hardly anybody there. The rooms are empty. There's all these chairs that are empty. You look at all the windows. There's a room and maybe there's a dozen windows where people would normally be working. Government people would be working, you know, taking people's applications. And like two of them actually have people there. So it's just there's nobody working. That is the problem. Nobody is at the passport office working because apparently it's COVID and so they're not coming back to work. In fact, after I left and I they said to come back, it's going to take three to four hours for your passport to be ready right after you leave. So I come back and I have to go to will call so I can find out you know if I've been called or not. And this is the room where you get your passports. And I go there and I wait online and there's will call, you know, there's window there. Nobody's there. Nobody was there for almost an hour. So everybody's sitting around. Nobody got a passport. I think the person went to lunch and just decided, okay, I'm leaving for lunch. Nobody's here for an hour. You got these people sitting around in this room waiting for their passports and there's nobody there to hand them out because somebody went for lunch and there was nobody else there to take their place. So the whole thing was completely ridiculous. And I heard so many really bad stories because what happened was, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, a lot of the people who were there on Monday were people who were supposed to be there on Friday, but because on Thursday night, they declared Juneteenth the a national holiday and gave all government workers the day off the next day, including the ones that work at the passport office, even though hardly any of them are working there anyway, the passport office was closed. So there are a lot of people that were there that were supposed to be there on Friday. I talked to people who, you know, as I said, they had to cancel their flights. They got to rearrange their hotels. I talked to this woman who was there with her kids. They were going to Aruba. You know, it cost her $1,500 to change her flight to the next day from the tickets that she had. There was one guy there that was really into bad shape because he was still trying to leave that day. In fact, there were several people that were still trying to make flights that day out of JFK and get their passports. And there are some people that had some real urgent need to get to where they needed to go. And they had appointments on Friday and everything would have been fine. And now they're having to show up on a Monday for a Monday flight. Uh, and, you know, so you got to hear all this as I'm as I'm sitting around waiting for them to call the name of my kids so I can pick up my passport. But meanwhile, there is no reason for any of this to have happened. The government has plenty of employees that could have been called back to work. I'm sure all these people who are not at the passport office, who work for that department, I'm sure they're getting paid. They're just not doing the work. Why can't they do the work? I mean, we're all there in masks. We've all got vaccines. What is the problem? Again, the problem is the government doesn't give a damn about the people. And why should they? They take the people for granted. As I said before, it's the government that is the master, but we're all their servants. The opposite of what it's supposed to be. And to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, I want to talk about some articles that I have been reading about the whole idea that admission 
to universities is racist and discriminatory. And the practice of these admissions boards of selecting students based on criteria like their SAT scores or their GPA or you know whether or not they excel at sports or looking at all their extracurricular activities, that somehow all of this information that is used to evaluate candidates and to offer admission, that it's all racist. It's all somehow the byproduct of white privilege, even though in many cases, Asians do a lot better when it comes to admissions than whites. They overlook that aspect of it. And so the idea is that since all this criteria is just arbitrary and racist, that it should just be abandoned and that what we should do is just offer admission based purely on random selection. In other words, like a lottery, right? Anybody who wants to go to a particular college, you know, like Harvard, you simply submit your application. Harvard takes all the applications and just kind of puts them in a big bucket, spins it around, and just randomly grabs the applications. Although obviously there'd be too many to do that. So it would be, you know, some kind of randomly generated number sequence. But in other words, it's just the luck of the draw. And that's who gets into Harvard. Now, I want to talk about the absurdity of this concept. Although, you know, before I do that, I want to say that I thought about not even including this in the podcast, because again, it's kind of political. And I I did this when I did my podcast last week. I also wanted to talk about Juneteenth. And I decided that potentially my comments on Juneteenth were a bit controversial because I, I didn't support making it a federal holiday. And so I didn't want to subject my advertisers to any kind of backlash. And so I didn't include it in my normal podcast. I recorded a special podcast on Juneteenth. And by the way, if you only listened to or watched on YouTube the Juneteenth podcast, you need to realize that that was the second podcast I released on June 19th. That was a Saturday. My normal podcast came out earlier in the day, and that was a great podcast. Not as many people listened to it. What I think is that maybe some people, they saw the most recent one, and they didn't realize that there was another one that came out earlier that day, because I rarely release two podcasts in the same day. And so the Juneteenth podcast has a lot more views than the podcast that came out earlier in the day. The Fed adopts a no-stick monetary policy. So if you missed my no-stick podcast, make sure and go listen to it. But I think that this particular topic, though it's political, I really can't see that anything that I'm about to say with respect to this topic could be controversial. Because only a complete fool would support this ridiculous idea that some people on the left are actually espousing. Now, I think most people on the left, as crazy as they are, they're not this crazy. Oh, and by the way, before I get into this, one other thing I wanted to say about my Juneteenth YouTube video is that I think that YouTube is going out of its way to suppress the video in that they don't want people to see it. Because if you go to YouTube, and I challenge you to do this, go to YouTube and type in Juneteenth and then search. And what it's supposed to do is bring up the most relevant videos on that topic, right? Well, my video is titled, Juneteenth is only the beginning. Juneteenth is the first word in the title. It's also the first word that I chose when you chose when you choose keywords, right? You're, you, you add your own keywords to all your videos. And the very first keyword I added was Juneteenth. And of course, the description uh, is all about Juneteenth. Now, there's nothing negative about Juneteenth in the description. There's nothing negative about it in the title. In fact, you can interpret the title very positively. 
Juneteenth is only the beginning. A lot more good stuff to follow, right? A long uh, march starts with the first step, right? So you could look at the title and you might think, well, this guy is going to be really positive about this Juneteenth holiday, right? You, you can't tell anything from the title. You can't tell anything from the description. Anyway, this video is out for a couple of days. It's already got more than 60,000 views, which is not bad. It's got over 3,000, as I'm looking at it, 3,400 likes, 232 thumbs down. So a lot of people are rating it, even though I didn't ask for anybody to rate it. People just rate my videos. I mean, I'm told that you're supposed to ask for people to rate your videos. And so, hey, I might as well ask on this one, see if it makes a difference. If you like this video, give it a thumbs up. In fact, even if you don't like it, give it a thumbs up. That's if you're listening on YouTube. If you're listening on my podcast, you know, just like it. I don't think they got thumbs up, uh, you know, on uh, Shift Radio or iTunes, but you can certainly uh, indicate that you that you like the podcast. It's also got a lot of comments, almost 1,700 comments so far on this video where people write comments. That's a lot of comments. So based on the engagement, this video is getting a lot of traction in a couple of days. Well, if you search Juneteenth, this video will not come up. I mean, maybe it comes up eventually. I gave up looking for it. I probably went through at least the top 100 videos, maybe more on YouTube, and I still did not see my video. Now, if you search it with more words, you'll find it. But if you just put in Juneteenth, you get all these videos about Juneteenth, but you won't get mine. Now, of course, there's a lot of videos from big news organizations. There are a lot of videos that have a lot more views than mine, but there are a lot of videos that have a lot less. Here's just one example, and this is not the only example. There's a video that is called, What is Juneteenth? Question mark. This video has been around for about two weeks, not two days. So it's had a lot longer to gain views, right? It was put out by a YouTube channel called Reckon, R-E-C-K-O-N. They've only got 819 subscribers. So it's a very small channel. 719 people have watched this video. That's it. In two weeks, that's all the views it's got. It's got 20 thumbs up and four thumbs down and only eight comments. That's it. Yet this video shows up. If you're searching for videos on Juneteenth, YouTube suggests that you watch this one, right? Now, it's not number one. Maybe it's number 20, 25 on the list. I, I wasn't counting. But the fact is, this video comes up and mine doesn't. Why? What is it about a YouTube algorithm that would say a video that barely anybody has watched that barely anybody has commented on, that this one is more significant and more relevant than my video, which is getting a lot of traction, a lot of views, a lot of likes, a lot of comments. How can this be? I think that what must have happened is that somebody actually watched my video. And after watching my video, they didn't like it. Why didn't they like it? Because I was opposed to the Juneteenth holiday. And so they didn't want people looking for videos about Juneteenth to find mine. I mean, why? Hardly anybody is opposed to it. This is such a minority position, right? The vast majority of people, maybe 99% of the YouTube videos out there on Juneteenth are probably positive. And so maybe there's 1% that are negative, yet YouTube doesn't even want anybody seeing that tiny percent of videos that are not in favor of this. Why is that? I think because there are a lot of people who don't think it should be a national holiday, don't think federal workers should get another day off, but YouTube doesn't want people who think that way to realize that other people think that way. YouTube wants those people to think that they're crazy, that they're like, they're nuts for thinking this, that there's nobody else that thinks like that, and therefore they must be racist if they have this opinion. So even though there's hardly any opposition to this, they want to bury it so that it looks like there's no opposition and that it's unanimous. Everybody believes that this should be a national holiday. After all, it was unanimous in the U.S. Senate, so YouTube wants to make it look like it's unanimous on YouTube. But let me go back, though, to this topic about making admission to universities just based on a lottery so that it's all random, so that somebody 
who studies real hard, smart guy, all A's, great SAT score, great extracurriculars, really busted their butt throughout high school, that that guy has no better chance of getting into Harvard than somebody who barely graduated. Maybe they had a C average, didn't really study, didn't do any extracurriculars, didn't play any sports, just was a bum, barely graduated, got a diploma, right? Got low SAT scores if they even took the SATs, right? That guy's got the exact same chance of getting in as a superstar. I mean, what is that going to do? I mean, is anybody going to be motivated to excel in high school if nothing they do impacts their chances of getting into a good college? If it's all just the luck of the draw, if everybody has the same chance. The whole concept is sheer lunacy, yet there are actually intellectuals on the left who are seriously discussing this and they're not being laughed out of existence. People are taking this stuff seriously. I mean, first of all, assuming this could ever happen, right? If getting into Harvard and Princeton and Yale was just the luck of the draw, right? These wouldn't even be good universities anymore. Why would they be? I mean, how rigorous could their curriculum be if they're just letting anybody in whose name is pulled out of a hat? I mean, the reason these are top universities, it's not just because they have top-notch professors, but because they have a top-notch competitive student body. You take all that away and you destroy the very value of the Ivy League education. So it becomes worthless. And of course, why would you even want to do that? Let's say you've got these schools that have top-notch teachers, right? The best of the best are teaching at the Ivy League. Don't you want your best students going there? Your smartest, your most gifted, your most ambitious Don't you want your best students being taught by your best teachers? Do you really want to take your best and your brightest and send them to some lower quality university because that's the one that picked their name out of a hat, right? Do you want to have the dumbest teachers teaching the brightest students and the brightest teachers teaching the dumbest students? What idiotic society would want to do something like that? But, you know, to really illustrate the absurdity of this whole concept. And of course, you know, none of this is racist, but to illustrate the sheer absurdity, let's just continue to extrapolate this concept because if this works for admissions to college, if college admission should not be based on merit at all, it should be sheerly a function of random chance of picking a name out of a hat. If that's the way we're going to decide who gets to go to Harvard And who gets to go to Santa Monica City, right? If that's, you know, our criteria, well, A, why not apply the same criteria to the professors, right? Why are we letting the best professors teach at Harvard? Hey, you want to teach at Harvard? Put your name in a hat, right? And see who gets picked, right? We shouldn't allow Harvard to discriminate and just try to hire the best teachers based on their body of work, what they've done in the past, and maybe what university they went to, what other colleges they may have taught at, what papers they may have written, how they may have been reviewed by their peers. Forget all that. Let's just pick the professors the same way we pick the students. Let's draw their name out of a hat, right? And of course, if we do that, well, then what difference is Harvard from Santa Monica City? It's not different at all, right? Because A good teacher is just as likely to be at Harvard at some community college because all of these jobs are given away based on the randomness of a lottery system. But why should we stop at colleges? Why don't we just pick all of our jobs based on this criteria? Why don't we make it illegal for any employer to discriminate based on qualifications, based on education or experience, Why don't we just force all companies to hire based on a lottery? And so then students, right, they just decide what they want to be and whatever job they want, they just put their name, you know, in the hat and they see if they get picked. So let's say it's the CEO of Apple. You want to be the CEO of Apple? Okay, you want to be the CEO of Apple? Put your name in the Apple CEO lottery. Doesn't matter what your job experience is. Doesn't matter what you know about technology or about running a company or even about Apple. Just as so long as you want the job, 
you should have the same opportunity to get that job as anybody else. No other factors should matter, right? And see, this is going to make sure that there isn't some type of disproportionate, disparate impact in the racial makeup of our CEOs. Because if all the CEOs are just picked out of a lottery, well, then, you know, we're going to get a random distribution based on race and gender and sexual orientation. And since that's the only thing that counts, not meritocracy, but which ethnic group you associate with, well, that's what we're going to do. So the same thing for everything. You know, you want to be a heart surgeon? Well, just put your, you know, put your name in that lottery and see if you get selected to be a heart surgeon. You want to be an NFL quarterback? Well, pick the team you want a quarterback for. Even if you never even played in high school, maybe you want to be an NFL quarterback, put your name in a lottery. Maybe you'll get lucky. I mean, is that what we want? Do we really want to choose our occupations based on the randomness of a draw? Do you really want to have heart surgery by a doctor who is your doctor because they picked his name out of a hat? Is that the kind of country that we want to live in? I mean, could anybody live in a country like that? Do you really want our most incompetent people just randomly assign the most difficult jobs and maybe our smartest people end up getting the lamest jobs. I mean, what if one of the brightest people in the class, he doesn't get his name picked to be the CEO of Apple or to be a heart surgeon. Maybe he gets picked janitor at Chuck E. Cheese. Is that what you want? Do you want, you know, the smartest people cleaning toilets at a fast food restaurant? Well, you have the dumbest people running our companies? Of course not. But this is basically the same attitude that people are expecting for selecting the students to go to our top universities. Can't they see the absurdity of what they're suggesting? You know, I want to take this analogy a step further, beyond even employment, to dating and marriage. And, you know, Maybe my views on this subject could be a little dated. I'm a little old-fashioned, you know, because when I grew up, uh, it was the men that pursued the women. I mean, my guess is it's basically still that way, but maybe not completely. But it was up to the guys to go out there and ask the girls out on dates, and the girls would say no until eventually uh, one of them said yes. So uh, the men were pursuing the women, and the women were just deciding from among their suitors who was appealing and who they would go out with or ultimately who they might marry. But, you know, none of this is fair because, you know, it shouldn't be that just the handsomest, uh, most successful, most powerful, most famous guys get to go out, you know, with the supermodels or the A-list Hollywood actresses. Everybody should have an equal chance of dating all those really hot women. So just the way they proposed that Harvard decide who it's going to admit, we should force women to pick their boyfriends or their husbands through the same process, right? A lottery. So anybody who wants to date or marry a particular woman, they just put their name into this hat. And then after everybody who's interested has submitted a ticket, well, then there's a random drawing and whoever's name gets picked out of the hat, well, that's the lucky winner, right? So in theory, let's just take um, someone like Scarlett Johansson. I'm sure there's millions of guys that want to date or want to marry Scarlett Johansson. So she's going to have a lot of entries into her lottery, right? And somebody is going to win, right? And I guess a lot of people would say, yeah, that's fair. Everybody has a fair shot. No one person has a better chance than anybody else, right? And, and so Scarlett Johansson has to pick her husband from random selection. And what if she ends up pulling out of the hat and the guy she picks is an unemployed, overweight, short, bald guy with bad breath, still living with his mother, right? This guy has no chance of getting a date, let alone marrying Scarlett Johansson, but in a lottery, he's got the same chance as everybody else. And so if we force this type of arrangement, well, now this guy has a fair shot and it's very fair for this guy because now he's won the opportunity to marry Scarlett Johansson. Well, here's the point. It may be very fair to this guy who wouldn't have a chance in a free market of getting a date with Scarlett Johansson, right? Let alone becoming her husband. 
But in this system, it's fair. It's fair to him. Is it fair to Scarlett Johansson? How is it fair to her? She doesn't have a choice. She is forced to marry this unemployed, overweight, short, bald guy with bad breath living with his mother. How is it fair to her? And that is the point that everybody misses. Whenever the government interferes to try to make an outcome in a free market fair for one person, they're making it unfair for somebody else. What's fair is a free market. It's when the government stacks the deck, that's what makes it unfair. So when you require universities to admit students who aren't qualified, that is unfair to all the students who are qualified, not just the ones that don't get in, but the ones who do get in because their entire experience is degraded by the fact that it no longer counts because they were admitted not on merit, but based on luck. The same thing with the CEO of Apple. If you force Apple to hire an incompetent CEO, maybe it's fair to that guy who never would have got a job, but it's unfair to all the shareholders of Apple who now have a terrible person who doesn't know anything about running a company in charge of their business. If you force medical schools to give degrees and you force hospitals to hire surgeons that are incompetent, they just pick them out of a hat. Maybe it's fair to the surgeon, but is it really fair to the patient? who's being operated on by an incompetent surgeon? I mean, what about an airline pilot? We make somebody an airline pilot, not because they know how to fly a plane, but because we picked their name out of a hat. Maybe it's fair to the pilot. Is it fair to the passenger? Of course not. See, all of these liberals that want to use the power of government to make things fair, they don't want to make things fair. They want to rig the market. They want to stack the deck. What is fair is a free market. That's the only thing that's fair. The racial diversity of the outcome is completely irrelevant to whether or not the process is fair. So instead of trying to rig the selection process to make it unfair, which is what they're doing, to the extent that African-Americans or any other group is underrepresented in the outcome, what they need to do is not stack the deck, but up their game so that they can win fair and square. 